Good morning from Washington, D.C. I'm Paul Kincaid, Director of Congressional Outreach for FMC, the Association of Former Members of Congress. I'd like to welcome all of you to this special virtual roundtable. For those of you who have missed previous episodes, I'd invite you to visit our archives at usafmc.org sounds to check out our other programs and to subscribe to the virtual roundtable as a podcast, either on Apple or on Spotify. This is an interactive discussion today, so if you have a question for our panel at any time, simply click the Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom screen, fill out your name and your question, and if we choose you, our moderator will call on you to ask your question over audio only to our panel. Again, anytime during the call, just click the Q&A button at the bottom center of your screen. Election security has been a discussion topic during the 2020 election in a way that has rarely happened before. The President of the United States has referred frequently to the possibility that if he does not win, it'll be because the election was stolen from him. Meanwhile, noted poll analyst Nate Silver said recently that former Vice President Joe Biden leads by such a margin that he should win unless the election is stolen from him. So we approach an election that is in question beforehand and which could see questions afterwards in numbers and fury not seen since 2000. Today we'll talk about how America can ensure a fair, transparent vote and why the peaceful transition of power that vote could create is so important to the history and the future of our nation. Today will be very much like our election, a little bit different than the normal fair, because we have such a wonderful group of former members today. We'll introduce them briefly to set the stage, and then I'll get out of their way and allow them to have a great discussion. From the Republican side, we have Congressman Charlie Dent, who many of you may recognize from his appearances on CNN. He represented Pennsylvania from 2005 to 2018. Congressman Phil Gingrey serves on FMC's board along with Congressman Dent. He represented the Atlanta suburbs from 2003 to 2015. Finally, Congressman Dennis Ross served Central Florida from 2011 to 2019. From the Democratic side, we have Congresswoman Loretta Sanchez, who served Southern California from 1997 to 2017 and actually ran for Senate against Vice President Biden's vice presidential nominee, Kamala Harris. Congresswoman Gwen Graham served the panhandle of Florida from 2015 to 2017 and is extra familiar with Florida elections as the daughter of one of the most well-respected governors and senators in Florida history. Finally, Albert Wynn, who also serves on FMC's board, represented Maryland from 1993 to 2008. So that's our group who will have a great discussion and they'll be moderated sparingly by FMC's CEO, Pete Weichlein, who also has an impressive resume, but we just don't have time for it today. Pete, the floor is all yours. Well, thank you, Paul, for this introduction and uh, for getting us started. And uh, my thanks to the audience out there for joining us this morning. We really appreciate it. Uh, as you can see, just by uh, looking at the screen this morning, we're doing things a bit differently than our usual FMC panels. And we're joined by a large group, a large bipartisan group of former members um, who will have a conversation with each other and will allow us to uh, be a fly on the wall. Um, so uh, I will set them loose in just a second. We will try to reserve some time at the end for audience questions. Um, and if you do have a question, please use the uh, Q&A function below as uh, Paul mentioned, and we'll unmute you at that time. Um, when FMC pivoted to virtual programming back in mid-March, we thought we'd be at it for just a couple of weeks at most, and few of us, and that's certainly myself included, even knew how to spell Zoom, let alone how to organize one. And here we are, almost 150 virtual panel discussions later with no end in sight. And whether it's fair or not, the first term of the Trump administration will be judged almost entirely by his response to this enormous crisis. And this extends further, of course, for example, wearing a mask has become a political issue as well as a clear symbol of how divided we are as a country. I'm joining you this morning from FMC's office in downtown DC and most businesses that have windows and glass doors at street level are boarding up as if a hurricane is about to hit Washington DC. 
because they want to be ready for whatever may happen on the streets of our cities across the country, the nights of November 3rd, 4th and beyond. So let's make that the jumping off point for this conversation. And again, thank you all so much for lending us your time and expertise. And I should also note that Charlie then has to leave us at 11.45 sharp. So if he suddenly disappears, don't be alarmed. So as we're talking about election security and the peaceful transition of power, we need to acknowledge that no matter what the outcome of the election, there will be a large percentage of Americans who will feel disappointed, possibly angry. And there will even be a large number of Americans who, again, regardless of the outcome, will believe that they were robbed. So how do we address those fellow citizens? We talk a lot about unity, but how does the winner of this election reach out to those who doubt his legitimacy as president? Uh, and Gwen, what I just described most certainly will play out all over your home state of Florida. So how do we move forward? And you're still on mute. All right, here we go. Uh, well, first, Pete, thank you so much for the opportunity to be a part of this panel. And I appreciate all the work that uh, FMC does on behalf of bipartisanship and unity, because that is actually what this is all about. Uh, I, as usual, am sitting in the state that a lot of attention is paid to Florida. Uh, Florida, Florida, Florida. I remember when Tim Russert uttered those, those words so many years ago. And my state is actually a microcosm of our country from one end of the state to the other, as Congressman Ross knows. Hi, Dennis. How are you? <laughs> um, so we will be the focus on election night. And I wish I could tell you that I knew what was going to happen. But Florida being Florida, that's impossible. We had a massive early voting but um, as, the, as the absentee votes are counted and the early votes are counted, the Republican portion of that is gaining ground on the Democratic portion. But of course, we don't know, you know who voted for who. So, so I think it's really going to be key, whoever wins this election, um, that they set the tone, whether it is the reelected President Trump or President-elect um, Joe Biden, that they set the tone for our country and our country's History has been based on peaceful transfer of power. And no matter who is elected, it, is always, it has always been the case that the outgoing president welcomes the incoming president and um, recognizes that our democracy is greater than either political party. And I, I think it's such a wonderful, wonderful uh, moment and testament to our democracy that the outgoing president leaves a note for the incoming president in, in the desk drawer there in the Oval Office. Um, so I'm very, I'm an optimistic person. <laughs> uh, I, I actually, um, I would say right now I'm optim optimistic, but also on edge because a lot of what our country stands for will be determined uh, on November 4th and how we react to this election. And I know a lot of people are very passionate, but you know, my passion lies and believing in our country and believing as we move forward that the American people deserve to have a government that uh, does stand for what our country stands for, which is we are the United States of America and we're not a red blue and, or, or a red America or a blue America, we're the United States of America. And I think with that message, we just have to calm people down. We have to have the president elect or the reelected president um, being, being the voice that says to all of us, we've now had an election, 
we're going to move forward and and calls upon the people of our country to be united as we need to be. I, this is Loretta Sanchez. I would definitely agree with everything that my colleague Gwen said. And first of all, it's so nice to see everybody and thank you everybody for joining. And I think Florida is a key, you know, but uh, Vice President Biden doesn't need Florida to win. Um, but certainly Trump does. And so uh, I was just telling my colleague, I'll be in Florida. I'm a Californian. I think that will go for Biden. And so I'm going to Florida for the next few days to get out the vote that we need in order to ensure that um, you know, as a Democrat, my Democratic um, vice president uh, uh, wins. But I think when you look at the aftermath, it's incredibly important for leadership, leadership at all levels, not just um, current President Trump, should he be reelected or not, um, and vice, uh, former Vice President Biden, should he be elected or not. They both have to set the tone and it brings me back, it harkens me back again to another Florida story in the year 2000 when we had the Bush-Gore race. At the time, I was a co-chair for the Democratic National Committee. So I was actually chairman. And we lost, of course, through a long process in Florida by a little bit over 500 votes, according to the Supreme Court, et cetera. And we had to okay that vote in the House of Representatives with Al Gore, because he was the vice president at the time, chairing that session of Congress. It was on a Saturday morning. And I remember as a DNC chair going up to him and saying, let's fight this. And Gore said to me, no, this has to be a transition. We're putting it aside. We're putting politics aside and we're going to get this done. And so even in one of the most contentious um, presidential elections, we had one of the key players, um, the guy who lost, say, no, we really need to make this transition. So I hope that that is what we will see. But we also need to see it at every level. Our Congress people play a very important role in ensuring that they're locally elected in a lot of ways, you know, that they set the tone in their districts, that they talk to their mayors, that the mayors are setting the tone, that the council people are setting the tone. Um, it may be a while to know the results of the election, but the leadership at all levels has to be open to uniting and to getting behind the winner. And one thing in Florida, Loretta, as Dennis knows, is we start counting our absentee ballots early. So we will have more numbers that are, are, are hard numbers uh, on November 3rd. So a lot of the determination on November 3rd will be turnout, I think. And Dennis, I'd be curious to hear your, your thoughts on this, but I, I am anticipating a November 3rd massive turnout, particularly for the Republicans, because um, uh, President Trump has, has caused folks to question early voting, uh, whether it's through mail-in voting or through, even through going to early voting, which is available now in Florida. Um, so that I, I think November 3rd is going to be a large, we're going to have lines uh, across the state. And so it's going to be a late night, but we will have more hard numbers than other states who can't start counting the absentee ballots until the day of the election. I, I think you're absolutely right. And we will have a. Sorry for my dog. 
<laughs> we will have a record turnout in Florida, no question about it. In 2000, I was in the Florida legislature and it was the first time that we really had this type of constitutional crisis with the popular vote. And I think we're gonna see it again because in the constitution under article two, section two, uh, the legislatures determine the method and manner by which they will send their electors to the electoral college. And the only way that you can really uh, contest an election um, is through fraud, which has to be proven with specific intent. In malfeasance and gross neglect are bases to overturn an election. And so you're gonna see the courts get involved, but. You know, Loretta, your example of what you said about Al Gore is tremendous. And, 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 and Gwen, and where we are is we're going to have to have true leadership. Uh, whoever loses is going to have to exercise that leadership as well as the one who wins, because the American public are going to want to, the, the losing side is going to want to fight all the way through to a revolution, possibly. And it just isn't our heritage. It's not our history. It's not the way we run a democracy. It's going to be a very interesting time. And, and, and Phil, if I can jump in here and, and ask you specifically about Georgia and what you're seeing in Georgia, because um, Vice President Biden was in Georgia just recently. So clearly on the Democratic side, they think they can put Georgia on the map. Um, and it comes down to this, this analysis that we see kind of play out all over the country between rural and urban and, and how the uh, suburbs, Atlanta suburbs, for example, fit into that whole puzzle. So, so what are you seeing, and 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 how do you think this will play out over, over November third and beyond? Well, Peter, as you know, and my colleagues, I'm sure know as well. Uh, President Bush, uh, I'm sorry, Vice President uh, Biden uh, went to Warm Springs just in the last couple of days. Warm Springs uh, is uh, south uh, uh, west of, of Atlanta. And it's where the little White House is located uh, in Meriwether County. <clears throat> it used to be part of my congressional district. And uh, I thought that was a uh, kind of a nice uh, place for him to be. Uh, I don't think FDR actually went there to die, as he was quoted as saying, uh, as uh, Vice President Biden was quote, quoted as saying. But uh, it was a historic place. And, and uh, FDR did tremendous rural electrification of Georgia in particular, West Georgia. Uh, and then of course he went to the city of Atlanta where you've got a huge uh, democratic base. And of course, Trump has been the state a number of times as well. Uh, I, don't, I don't see Georgia turning blue, uh, although it is, it is definitely purple. <clears throat> I don't think that um, uh, Trump will lose in Georgia. I don't know about the Senate races you know, there's a, we have a unique situation this year uh, in Georgia of having both of our senators up for uh, election, uh, David Perdue for a second term against John Ossoff, the Democrat. And then Kelly Leffler uh, is in a special election, kind of like uh, Loretta uh, in California, uh, kind of an open jungle primary. Uh, the, the main contenders are two Republicans uh, Congressman Doug Collins uh, and uh, Senator Kelly Leffler on the Republican side uh, and on the Democratic side, the pastor, Reverend Warnock of a, a mega church in Atlanta, uh, very, very popular. And so uh, two of those people, because I'm sure nobody will get 50% on November the 3rd, two of them, probably Reverend Warnock uh, and either Senator Kelly Leffler or Congressman Doug Collins will be in a runoff. And that runoff, guys, is not until 
uh, after the first of the year, sometime in early January. So we probably won't know in that Senate race until early January. Uh, so, uh, Pete, it's uh, Georgia is a very, very interesting state this time around. I think over three and a half million people, uh, as we speak this morning, have already either voted absentee uh, or early voting. Uh, and uh, I would I would imagine come election day, uh, in absentee ballots in Georgia have to be uh, in uh, by November the third. Uh, they, they don't have this, this long several days uh, postmarked uh, by November the 3rd, but being received, uh, and Charlie may want to speak to this, Supreme Court made a decision in regard to Pennsylvania and allowing those ballots to come in up to six days uh, after November the 3rd. They rejected the same sort of thing in Wisconsin, which is a little un unusual. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I agree very much with what uh, Loretta and Gwen uh, and Dennis have said, I mean, I think it's a hugely important uh, that we accept the results. Now, I, I don't know, know that that'll be on the morning, uh, wee hours of November the 4th, uh, but whether it's two weeks or three weeks or whatever, ultimately, we need to accept the results and not get into a situation like we've been in for the last three years of not accepting the results. And I say that as a proud Republican, so I don't want to get too partisan here, but uh, that's the way I see it going forward. And and Charlie, what about Pennsylvania? What, I mean, it's uh, a lot of people are saying that is the state to to determine um, what will happen. <clears throat> yeah, I, I think Pennsylvania, in many respects, is the new Ohio in terms of swing votes, the swing uh, the swing state rather. And so I think you know, just like Florida, I don't think Trump can win without Florida. I don't believe Biden can win without Pennsylvania. Uh, and, uh, and I would say this, that in Pennsylvania, if you look at the polling averages, I don't know, it's, uh, I think Real Clear Politics has it about three and a half or 4%. And I think 538 has it maybe at five or 5% average in Biden's favor. Uh, so I think it's tightening a little bit here. Uh, the other issue I'd point out that what, we're, what I'm most concerned about in Pennsylvania is not so much issues of voter fraud or voter suppression. I'm more concerned about voter system failure. Pennsylvania for the first time, is actually uh, engaged in um, no excuse absentee voting. We've always had absentee voting, but the law was changed by the General Assembly before the pandemic. And so, and of course they did not anticipate a pandemic when they passed the law. Uh, and, uh, and so we are gonna experience enormous volumes of mail-in votes or absentee votes. Last I checked, I think it was over 3 million have already uh, been, uh, people have requested applications for 3 million absentee ballots. There are 13 million people in Pennsylvania, to give you some context. I believe about two thirds of those absentee ballots have already been returned. Um, so, so we haven't ever dealt with volumes like this. We dealt with it in the primary in June and we, it, was, it didn't go that smoothly, to be perfectly candid. Uh, it was the first time out of the gates. I think they learned some lessons, but now we're gonna deal with these huge volumes. Now in Pennsylvania, uh, the election officials cannot start counting the ballots until election day, November 3rd. Uh, I think they can start in the morning when the polls open at 7 a.m. So that's going to happen. Um, and uh, the other issue too, the Supreme Court, as Phil mentioned, did rule uh, that ballots could be received up to three days after the election, as long as they were postmarked uh, by election day. Uh, that's the ruling. Uh, clearly we're worried about uh, 
there are postal issues everywhere around the country. We're worried about it in Pennsylvania, but I'm more worried about these volumes and how quickly they'll be able to tally. Um, now, that said, I, I just articles today in some of the local press saying that they are confident that they're going to be able to count those ballots fairly quickly. But I am not anticipating a definitive outcome on election night in Pennsylvania. I'm not anticipating it. Maybe I'll be surprised if, it's a, if this is a kind of a blowout, then maybe you will have a, an idea. Uh, but it could take a few days uh, before we have a, a sense of what's happening here. And so that's my my quick take on, on Pennsylvania. We have several competitive, we have a few uh, competitive house races. Uh, my old seat, uh, the Fitzpatrick seat to the south of mine, the Cartwright seat to the north of me, uh, the Scott Perry seat to the west of me. Uh, so we have those, uh, Connor Lamb out in the western part of the state too. So we have about five, potentially six competitive house races here too. And, and Charlie, this is Lorette again. I come from a state that has a long history of um, absentee ballot voting, et cetera. I mean, I, I won my first election against Bob Dornan in 96 on ballot counting two weeks after the fact. Um, and traditionally, Republicans in our state have turned in the absentee ballots and the Democrats have gone in person, but we see the opposite in this particular election where Democrats are mailing their ballots in early and Republicans are all saying they're going to the polls because they don't trust the mail ballot system. Now, uh, last in this past primary was the first time that California, every Californian who is on the registration list to be voting has been sent a ballot. Um, so everybody has received a ballot. Now, just from my own um, history with that type of balloting, if a person generally doesn't turn that ballot in within five or six days of receiving it, they tend to lose it or misplace it in their household. And then the process to order a new one, et cetera, is, is pretty elaborate, you know, for just the average everyday person who may or may not be voting. So there could be a lot of snafus especially for new states that are doing the all mail-in ballot sort of system. Um, but to, just to give some indication of what that looks like. So when you get your ballot, if you fill it out and you send it in, great. If you lose it, you can order another one. If you lose it or misplace it, you can go in person. You can go to early voting. You can go down to the registrars three weeks ahead of time. It's open every day for registration. You can, um, you can go in person and vote that day. You can fill out your ballot and you can walk into your precinct and you can put in the ballot. Now we have less precincts because of COVID. So we have mailboxes places where you can actually drop off your mail-in ballot. So because of all those permutations of what and how you can vote, you have to, you know, if you're the registrar of voters counting, you have to say, okay, what happened to the ballot that we sent out? And was that turned in? And does that match up by signature and everything? Or you can say, um, did they vote in person? Then the vote in person takes precedent to another ballot that might have been sent in by them. Or did they turn in the ballot at a place that is not their precinct? First, we check their precinct if they vote in person. Then we check the ballot of where it was sent. And so there's a lot of permutations that someone has to go through before they can say, okay, this is the vote of that person. 
And so in California, it's been taking two, three, four weeks to certify, to have an outcome for an election. And we have a lot of history in voting this way. So new states that just took up this, we're gonna send ballots to everybody. I could see a lot of snafus happening along the way. If I could just uh, add one thing. Uh, in Pennsylvania, we do not mail the ballot to the individual. We, you as an individual must apply for an absentee ballot. Then it is mailed to you. So it's not, you're not automatically a voter, it's not automatically sent a ballot. I, I get That's, that, Charlie, but yeah. there are a lot of states who have just adopted, oh. let's send it yeah. out. Yeah, so here, but our, here's our challenge though, um, and you're on to something here, Loretta. Um, the, the challenge that we're facing is that it's a little complicated. So you receive your ballot in the mail after you've applied. And then, so you have to then fill out that ballot and then you place it in what we call the secrecy envelope that does not identify you. Then we take the secrecy envelope and we put it into the outer envelope where you uh, identify yourself and you must sign your name. Now, so we know that there are gonna be people who are gonna take their ballot and just shove it in the outer envelope and send it in. <laughs> there are gonna be some people who are gonna forget to sign your names. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, be it's, it's, it's complicated. So, we have that same process in Florida and I help, I actually helped my parents make sure that they met every single requirement so that their ballots were counted. <laughs> and well, yeah, we're, a, we're a lot of what Loretta described is compounded by, by real concerns about you know, efforts to suppress the vote, particularly the African-American vote. Is, is, that, is that a concern you share? Well, in Florida, uh, in Florida, they've they've analyzed the return ballots, and there's a there's a significant percentage of votes people of color whose absentee ballots have been rejected because they didn't meet all the requirements with the secrecy envelope. And there's a little on the Florida. I'm sure I'm assuming it's the same in other states. There's a little box, and you have to literally sign the name that is your voter registration name in the box without going outside the lines. There's lots of rules that, so, so there has been um, a greater percentage of, of, of people of color whose ballots have been rejected for not meeting all those rules. I think that's, that's a real concern. And it's interesting because uh, we also a year ago put in California what we call harvesting. So before nobody could touch your ballot, your mail ballot, you signed it and you sent it in. Or for example, my mother is 84, she signs it and she says at the top, Loretta's taking my ballot to, to, you know, in person or to the poll place. And I had to sign and she had to sign. Now we have harvesting. So you can go door to door. You can ask that you can't touch the ballot. They have to fill it out and put in the secrecy and the outside and everything. But you can actually say, give me your ballot now and I'll turn it in for you. And candidates can go, candidates campaigns can go, anybody can go collecting the ballots, basically harvesting and turning them in. Or in California, what the Republican Party did was they made their own boxes to and put them in neighborhoods to return the ballots, just put it in here and we'll return it for you. Well, they didn't say that. They just said, this is an official ballot box return box. And they've <laughs> set them up all over the place. So we don't know. I mean, honestly, I don't know if they're collecting them. They're going to say, oh, if they're a Democrat. We're not going to turn that one in for them. Or I'm, I'm not saying that they would do that. I'm just saying it's a possibility. So it's a very interesting election from that standpoint. If California goes for Trump, you might want to look into those boxes. <laughs> <laughs> Alba, what are you seeing in Maryland? 
I think Maryland's going to be fine. Uh, we are very blue. Uh, yeah, there are going to be some attempts at suppression. That's not going to be a problem. You know, when I listen, I, and I agree with a lot of what my colleagues have said, my sense is that, number one, as Charlie mentioned, if it's a blowout, a lot of this is not going to matter. People right. are not going to be nearly as passionate in, in their concerns. If it's close, it's going to be in a few states, and they're going to have to fight it out, as Mitch McConnell says, like a knife fight in a, in a telephone booth. It's going to be brutal, difficult, and in the courts. But at the end of the day, we're going to have a president. And the question is, that I'm very concerned about is actually acceptance and how do we get there? And yeah. I don't think rhetoric is going to do it, but rhetoric is going to be important and, and, and oh. leaders not gloating and exercising restraint, I think will be very important. I think a lot of us have been whipped into a frenzy uh, by candidates, by media, by you know special interest groups, PACs, whatever. All that's going to de-escalate significantly. So then how do we change the subject? I think we change the subject by people in leadership getting something done for the people. The people have a virus to deal with, they need relief, they need vaccine distribution, and they need economic re recovery. And so to the extent that leaders can change the subject after we get through the knife fight and all the technicalities and the court rulings and get to a point of acceptance, people will then be more in a, a, in a mood or of a mindset to accept if things are getting done and the subject has changed. But if we're still bickering, people are gonna still bicker. So I think the, solu the solution is probably how well we transition after the government in actions and not just rhetoric. Albert, uh, Phil, uh, I, I agree with you, but I, unfortunately, the, the real knife fight uh, is occurring in Washington, D.C. Uh, and I don't mean in the District of Columbia, I'm talking about in the halls of Congress. Uh, and the problem is, as I see it and have for a long time, is we have a two-party system uh, and it's uh, a bloodbath because it's uh, all or nothing uh, in every election cycle. There's no power sharing based on proportionality. Uh, there's no viable third party uh, where you would have to form a coalition as they do in parliamentary governments. Uh, and maybe in our lifetimes, maybe not, not I'm certainly not in my lifetime, but maybe in some of y'all's, uh, we, we'll get to that point. Uh, but uh, that's a huge problem and it continues and it worsens. And I've been out now six years. Um, I guess I've probably been out longer than, than any of you guys. Uh, and I've just seen it uh, getting worse and worse. And of course, it's uh, stirred up badly by uh, CNN and Fox News. Although I will give them credit uh, for keeping the electorate, uh, our citizens, our, our residents of this great country, uh, well informed. I mean, they're informed like never before. I mean, you think about 25 years ago or even when the Voting Rights Act was passed back in 1965. I mean, I don't think people were nearly as knowledgeable as they are now. Unfortunately, with that knowledge comes a great deal of skepticism. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of people are, are feeling uh, very skeptical and untrusting, and that's a sad state of affairs. And, you know, well, I truly hope that that gets better. I think it's getting better in my state of Georgia. I don't think there's any question about it. I mean, you look at uh, there's since Maynard Jackson uh, back in the 70s, there's not been a uh, uh, other than an African-American mayor of the great city of Atlanta. 
since that time. And, and I think that, you know, people, uh, everybody, every, every registered voter, every person that's eligible is getting that right to vote, that opportunity to vote. Uh, and, and yes, we, we require a photo ID, but I mean, it's not like in Chicago where they have to turn in the death certificate uh, to vote. <laughs> well, I, I really joking a little bit there, but but you know what I'm talking about. I mean, we want everybody to vote one time, and it be secured, and it be it be counted. Phil, I really I really hope you're right because my my recent experience running for governor um, in Florida, of course, I was criticized because I was bipartisan because I worked with Republicans in Congress, and because my voting record was not. 100% one way. And I, I really hope, I, I don't know what the answers are, but I really know that we need to get to a point where on both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats alike, that working together is, is what you should do uh, and, and not see that as a negative because you're willing to consider the issues independent of the partisan bent of the issues, which is what I was committed to doing in Congress. And I you did it. And I did it. And, and, and when I, but Dennis, I don't, I'm, you may know this, um, you know, when I was running for governor, they used, the, my own party used that against me, that I was not a straight party voter, in ter I mean, in terms of my service in Congress. And until we can get back to a point where once you're elected, you put aside the partisanship and you work together as, um, as, as, Congressman Wynn said, you know, you're working together. That's what the people want us to do, except for the extremes. Frankly, most people want us to put aside our politics and work together for their for their benefit. Well, Gwen, that is what they say. But your experience showed that, you know, um, the extreme usually gets picked more by the party. Mine was the same. Please. I mean, I ran in a general election and it was two Democrats. It was Kamala Harris and myself right. and the party picked her because I worked with Republicans because I reached across the aisle because I, I had 20 years of experience of working with Phil Gingrey and others. I know. Well, know? Loretta, Loretta, do you have a closed primary system in Cal? No, you have the jungle primary, right? We have the right? general for primary the top, where yeah. anybody can move forward. So we both got first and second in the primary. So there was no Republican in the race. It was just two right. Democrats. Right. And when all was said and done, the party said, no, we want the crazy one, you know? So Yeah, well, and we- yeah, I laughed because I went through that same experience. Gwen's you did? Through that experience. Yeah, yeah. I was you know, primary right. from the left, primary from the left, and that's the way it goes. Charlie, I don't know if you've had that experience from the right. But yeah, the extremes are driving the primaries, and it's very difficult for moderates and centrists well, my my uh, when in our primary in Florida, we have a closed primary and and on both sides um, and used to have a runoff. And frankly, a lot of the great governors of which my father is one would not have become governor, but for the runoff. But that is no longer in place. And so uh, in the primary, the top two were very close. But there is, you're absolutely right, Loretta, there is an advantage um, in the close, in a primary or in a state like California, where, where probably the top two are, are going to be Democratic. Though I, I know there have been exceptions in, in congressional races, because we have an amendment on the ballot right now, Dennis, as you know, that um, would essentially become, Florida would be a model like the California model. Uh, and, and so, um, 
but we, I don't know the answer to this. And I, and I actually feel passionate about this, that we have got to, if the people of our country want to have a government that's working for them, we've got to get away from this belief that if you're not pure, whatever, you know, that you somehow um, can be, can be uh, criticized for that. And I think each, in, each issue should be evaluated based on the merits of the issue, not the politics of the issue. Uh, and I think most of the people here on this Zoom call probably feel the same way. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and I might add, you know, the fastest growing population of registered voters are non-party affiliates. They're NPAs. Absolutely. You're right. We've got 30, it, close to 30 percent of them. In Florida. Yeah. They, the Republicans and the Democrats are going down and the NPAs are going up. Yeah. And anybody who follows friends ought to, ought, to, ought, to, ought to pick up on that, including those in the legislature when they talk about what type of primary system you want to have. But it all, go, it all goes back to education. You know, the American public need to be educated that the Congress is a is a dysfunctional body by by design. I mean, it is a deliberative body that, that moves slowly, but that's OK. Our president is elected for only four years, not a lifetime. And everything seems to be an all or nothing situation. And we've got to do a better job of educating, you know, at early ages about our political system, why it's so important to be involved. Why it's okay that if another side's win, because you're going to have another chance in a couple of years. And, and everything has just reached this boiling point of polarization where, you know, cataclysmic events are going to happen on November 4th. Well, and, and I think that's why this election is so critical as we move forward. Um, how we deal at the, the start of this conversation, which Pete set up so well, how we deal with post November 3rd. Yeah. is going to say a lot about our country and the direction we're going in and, and whether we can. And I, I really, I'm an optimistic person, as I said earlier. Um, and I, I hope my optimism is not proven to be uh, uh, wrong at this point in our country's history. I want to pick up on that in just a second. Let me just remind our audience members uh, in a couple of minutes, we'll, we'll give you an opportunity to, to chime in as well. So if you have a question, uh, please use the Q&A function on the bottom of your Zoom. Uh, type in your name and your question. Uh, we'll call on you. We won't open up any cameras. So if you're sitting in your jammies, you don't have to worry about that. But uh, we'd love uh, to unmute you and, and give you a chance to ask a question. Uh, knowing that uh, Charlie has to jump off this in a couple of minutes, I do want to pick up on what you all just talked about, which is, so how do we best engage the next generation then? Um, uh, you know, they're, they're seeing this dysfunction. Uh, they, they might be cynical. They might be turned off. On the other hand, we do see predominantly young people on the streets that are protesting because they're passionate about uh, certain issues in the country. So, Charlie, your thoughts on, on how do we channel that into uh, uh, the next generation of citizens? Well, look, I would just say this. Uh, yeah, to, to follow up on what the others have just said, there, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of political reward for those who seek consensus or compromise. I mean, that's right. the, the safety is tacking hard to the base for both parties. Go hard right, go hard left. And that's where it's safe. And that's frankly what drives the paralysis in this country, because people are afraid to get to a, a yes position. And, and I, I've got to tell you, I experienced that. When I was in Washington, you know, before Trump was elected on the Republican side, you know, we had a group of guys in the conference, you know, who were really good at telling you no and, you know, all the things they could never do. And, you know, would use that authority, you know, like the Freedom Caucus to obstruct 
you know, moving forward on bills, you know, for the majority. I mean, this, I mean, that just shows you how it, the, the, that takes it to the extreme. So, I mean, I guess my only advice to the next generation is, you know, if you want to get, if you want to get some things done, you have to elect people who have the ability to vote for things to get done. And if, if they're going to take these hard, rigid doctrinaire positions, they're unmovable. Well, guess what? You're going to have paralysis in government and dysfunction and, and you're going to be very unhappy. So they have to, it's, it's up, it's good, it's good, falls on, the responsibility falls back on the voters in many respects. Peter, I, I would, yeah, but that's a topic about the, you know, the, the, the new generation, if you will, of voters. Uh, I guess it was the 26th Amendment uh, back in 1970, 71, uh, that we gave the right to vote uh, to 18 year olds across the country. And at that point in time, really, that mo I think all of your states, uh, were uh, it, the age was 21 before uh, an individual citizen could could vote in this in a national election, uh, and so these these young people that are maybe 18, they're voting for the first time. Uh, they need to understand what a privilege this is and how important it is, and to to stay informed. And you know that the, those that are so informed that they want to become activists, absolutely activism march. Uh, wave of uh, a sign for your favorite uh, party and or uh, candidate, uh, but peacefully uh, and understand as we're talking about today, the most sub the, the subject matter of today is the transitioning of power. Uh, and, and hopefully uh, they'll understand that. And even if it goes to the uh, United States House of Representatives for a vote of the states to decide who's the president and to the United States Senate to the uh, vote of the senators to see who becomes vice president. All of that is would be a tremendous lesson in civics, in history, and how the process works. And I don't see that <laughs> as terribly bad. I hope that doesn't happen. Uh, but I think that the young people today, if they're paying attention, and they should be, uh, they're getting a great course uh, in, in, in our election history. You the thing is, what, our election process doesn't really do. lend itself to um, to compromise. We have this quote, competitive processes where you got special interests, fundraising, all of which is highly partisan. Those highly partisan forces drive everybody in the campaign and the winners are those who subscribe to, to the greatest extent, those highly partisan forces. So this is gonna be an extreme challenge. I think young people have to see a discussion about substance and issues and, and, and things that they care about to maybe get them engaged to the extent they say, wait a minute, you guys aren't getting to the solution. You're just arguing back and forth on a zero sum game. I win, you lose. I don't think that works. And I think that uh, you ask, where are the solutions? Well, one of the great things about, you know, there's, there's a lot of organizations I get asked to work with and to participate in. And I choose former members of Congress, why? because of the types of um, uh, programs that we hold, including going to campuses, um, talking to young people, letting them see Republicans and Democrats get along, can work, can agree to disagree. They actually, young people actually have to see that they're not seeing that through the prism of all the cable and broadcast television. They're not seeing that in the rhetoric of who gets chosen on the House floor to get more minutes to spew whatever it is they're going to talk about. They're not seeing that 
on those posts. So they have to, we have to find other ways for them to see um, collaboration and, and compromise and agreeing to disagree and friendship. And the thing, way we do that is we have to up our game as former members of Congress yes. to go around and to show young people that in fact things are different and there can be a better way to do things. Uh, Loretta, you're absolutely right. It is a legacy of our, it's a respons responsibility of our legacy as former members of Congress to do this. And, you know, I've developed even stronger relationships across the aisle since being out of Congress. And I feel this, this com compulsion to show that, you know, this next generation, they can make the big differences if we be there to teach them and show them it's okay to build consensus because that's what it's all about. So as the CEO of FMC, I appreciate the plug. <laughs> um, and if, if you want to understand better what Loretta just described, it's called our Congress to Campus program. And you can find information about it on our website, usafmc.org. Um, but the point you both make is uh, what the association is all about, which is what are the many different avenues that we can create where Republicans and Democrats working together can connect with as many different audiences and constituencies across the country to showcase exactly what you're showcasing right now and, and, and ability to interact, uh, a true friendship, respect for each other, uh, uh, pragmatic um, uh, solutions moving forward, uh, which we all know is happening on Capitol Hill. It's just not what's highlighted. Um, but let me now go to questions. And uh, the first question we have is from Thea Mayer from Politico, uh, who wants to ask about a potential Biden transition. So Thea, go ahead, unmute your microphone, uh, and uh, you can ask a question of our remaining panels. Hi, can you hear me here? Yes. Thanks for making the time to uh, do this panel here. I uh, was just curious about what your expectations uh, are for a Biden transition, uh, how it might be different from uh, transitions in the past if he wins, and what sort of potential pitfalls that he might face, both in working uh, with the outgoing Trump administration uh, and from within the uh, different factions of the Democratic Party. Thank you, Theo. Uh, Gwen, I know you've been very active with the Biden campaign in Florida. Is that something you want to address? Yes, I. Um, well, first of all, I'm very cognizant of the fact that I'm on the I'm a, I'm on the wall. I'm walled off against the campaign side. But I, as a citizen and a supporter of the vice president from day one, I actually endorsed him the day that he announced for president because I felt that he was the candidate that could win Florida. Um, I still feel that today, and you know. How many more days do we have, y'all? Five more days? <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. But um, I think the transition is going to have uh, an incredible responsibility because there's going to be a need to replace so many members of the federal uh, federal governing uh, administration. And, and I think that, again, I hope, I should say it was probably a better word, that the Trump administration, if in fact Vice President Biden is the president-elect, We'll, we'll put our country first and be supportive and helpful in making sure that the transition is a smooth one. We will see. I really, really hope that, that there isn't um, an antagonistic transition where those that are outgoing are not willing to help those that are incoming. 
because that that's it's not it's it's not hurting the political party. That's hurting the people of our country, and we should put the people of our country first. I do know, um, just tangentially, that the Biden team is really making an effort to get the smartest, best people. You know, and you have to start. You don't want to put the cart before the horse, so it feels almost like you're doing something. You don't want to be superstitious, right? But it's such a massive job that you have to start early and start considering who's going to be in the important roles for our country's future. Um, and I just, I have confidence in the vice president that if he is able, if he does win, um, that he will be able to put together a team that's going to have a lot of work to do, frankly. And number one at the top of the list is dealing with COVID. Uh, we, we, we do not have this virus under control. We have a lot of work to do. Dennis, I'm sure you're aware you know, Florida, I, I, as I'm sitting here, unfortunately, I don't know how to stop it, but I keep getting all these things popping up on my screen. You know, we had, a, again, another day of over 4,000 positive cases. Um, so there certainly is a lot of work to do to have the people, not just of Florida, but across the country feel that our, that we've got this virus is under control as much as we can. And that's going to be key to our economy and our economy coming back. I mean, until people, people feel that they're safe and healthy, uh, it's going to be very difficult to have a vibrant economy again. So um, optimistic, but, uh, but, but concerned about potential pitfalls if, if the outgoing administration is not going to put the people of our country first and do I, what's right. And I have another, uh, Loretta, if you let me, I, I have a couple of questions I want to make sure we get to. Um, somebody who does not want to be unmuted. So, uh, and it's to Phil Gingry and Dennis Ross, and it's specific to Republican current members, both House and Senate. If there's a Biden landslide, uh, it's easier for those Republican members to then start to distance themselves from from the Trump Republican Party. However, if it's a a close election. Where does that leave the Republican Party, um, having lost uh, rather significantly the midterms in 2018 and now potentially this election, but close enough to still have the Trump uh, leadership uh, of the Republican Party? So twofold question, landslide versus a close one, where does it leave the Republican Party? Well, <clears throat> uh, you, you know, naturally we're talking mostly about a peaceful transition uh, if uh, Vice President uh, Biden uh, is elected. Uh, but uh, let's also remember uh, that it needs to be a peaceful transition if uh, President Trump is reelected. Uh, and even though the polls don't indicate that, there, there certainly is a, is a uh, possibility that that could occur. So let's, let's, let's make sure that we talk to both sides and say, look, uh, it wasn't very peaceful uh, in 2016, uh, when Trump was elected, and that was not expected. Uh, uh, so maybe on the Democratic side, uh, they need to re remember uh, that it is time for a peaceful transition. Uh, and uh, in, in speaking to uh, the more likelihood that uh, Vice President uh, Biden is uh, elected, I guess that would be the 46th president of the United States. Uh, I think the, the Republican members, uh, Peter, the question about uh, whether it's a landslide for Biden or whether it's a very close win for Biden, uh, there will be a different response. 
Uh, there, if it's a landslide, then everybody, I think, is going to accept that, members of Congress in both the House and Senate, Republican members, uh, incumbents, uh, especially those that uh, get reelected themselves uh, going forward to the uh, 117th Congress. Uh, but uh, if it's close, I mean, I think, you you know, you're still going to you, uh, you're going to pick your team, whether it's Atlanta Falcons or the Green Bay Packers, you're going to stick with your team until uh, the final analysis. And if that comes down to the Supreme Court, uh, so be it. But when it's all said and done, I think that there will and needs to be a peaceful transition. But remember now, that includes a transition to a second term uh, for President Trump or first term for Vice President Biden. And, and I, would, I, would just, I would just simply say that irrespective of the outcome of this election, I think the Republican Party will be in a rebu rebuilding. Yeah, uh, I agree. I'm not a I Republican, know. but I agree. <laughs> Yeah, I, it's interesting because I was having this conversation with a reporter yesterday or the day before, I can't remember, um, you know, about whether Dennis and I'd be curious what you and Phil think. I mean, I do think my life has been, you know, I've been involved. I've never known a life where politics wasn't at the forefront of my life. And, um, you know, I've always known members of the Republican Party to have a certain set of values that at times, I mean, I look, I'm not going to get overtly political here, but you know, I do think that the Republican Party, a lot of the members are uncomfortable with some of the direction that they've seen the Republican Party go. Well, do you, Dennis, do you think that there will be sort of a coming home of a lot of Republicans? I think this, and then I apologize, I'm gonna to have to leave because I've got to go guest lecture a class. But I think that the Republicans and the Democrats at their core values believe that true leadership has to unite and that requires consensus. and and. You know, we've had such a protracted, polarized time, and I'm not saying that the blame goes one way or another, but I'm just suggesting that I think that, that irrespective of who wins this, the Republican Party is going to do some introspection and, and identify what it is that the electorate really want to see, and they want to see a unified leadership. And I think, and I'm hopeful, being optimistic as well, that that's where we go. Uh, you know, there's a lot of big name Republicans that have just sat on the uh, sidelines on this, and, and we'll see what happens. Yeah. I, I think, I think you're right. Probably, Probably the last question that we can get to, and it's to Albert as well as Loretta. Um, and the question is about um, Latino voters and African-American voters who uh, in size are growing from one election cycle to the next. Uh, what do you, can, are, are they a given um, for the Democratic camp? What are you seeing uh, for 2024 and beyond? Uh, and I know particularly within the Latino community, um, that's a difficult question to answer, but um, Albert, please share your thoughts with us okay. as well. From the African-American perspective, the answer is definitely no. It is not a given that you're gonna get the tremendous turnout that you see now. Uh, that was the sad mistake that was made in, in the last presidential election on our side we took for granted that there was an enduring coalition that emerged with Obama and that that would just kind of con continue on automatically. It's there, but it has to be energized. In this instance, it's energized by <laughs> fear of the Trump administration and all the negatives that have come with that. But going forward, I think it's gonna be agenda driven. If you know, folks, the Democratic Party in particular, are pushing an agenda that creates jobs, stimulates the economy, 
provides health care, deals with the fundamentals that people are concerned about. Oh, yeah, people can be motivated to come. They have a reason to come. Uh, but if we don't, and it's just a lot of bickering, a lot more partisanship, I think the enthusiasm will drop off if Trump is not uh, the sitting president. And Laverna, help us understand the Latino vote. Well, the Latino vote, just like the African-American community or any other vote, even the Anglo vote, is, uh, you know, it's not monolithic. There's so many things that drive people. Um, I think it's more a social economic and also a, a issue of what country you're, you're aligned, you've come from, for example, if it's an immigrant community. I will tell you that every month, 80,000 Latino youth turn 18 in the United States, 80,000 a month. Those that are citizens, okay? Those are 80,000 voters, a potential voters a month. Now about 80% or so of them are of Mexican American heritage, but you have Venezuelans, South Americans, Central Americans, et cetera, Cubans, et cetera. So um, what would I say about them? I'd say that they are not necessarily uh, with two feet in the Democratic camp. Um, they are going to vote according to issues that affect them, as my friend uh, from Maryland said. Um, it, it, they care about health care and they care about education. And believe it or not, they tend to be a little bit more um, more prone to be in organized religions, whether it's the Catholic church or whether it's evangelical community is really making a big drive into the Latino community, for example. So they are finding, they are finding their social network. And a lot of it tends to be more towards religious connection that I can see on the ground here in California, over 50% of the population is now Latino. And so um, I, I would just say that they're, they're and, and they are forced, they are forced into working for themselves in a lot of ways because they have accents, because they don't get treated right at work, because they won't get, um, because they don't get uh, the jobs that they want because they're not, they're not given opportunities in education. There's the big achievement gap still going on. We see it exactly here in California. So they tend to start their own businesses or work for themselves or be independent contractors, which means they care about healthcare, they care about the wage they're making, and they care that if they've developed a business that um, regulation and taxes and everything that we typically see in the Republican hold of things is important to them. So they are not natural, not naturally going to gravitate towards the Democratic Party. We've had a lot of people like a Pete Wilson, like a, um, a President Trump that has kind of pushed the Latino community towards the Democrats. But that's not, I, I don't see that necessarily being inherently a, a Latino thing. So they're up for grabs and they will be for the future. And um, Democrats have got to show results in order to get them in their camp. 
And in Florida, there's a lot of conversation about the Hispanic population in Florida and which direction they're gonna go this election season. As someone who was born and raised in Miami, there are significant changes occurring in South Florida and the Cuban American population um, that's traditionally been uh, very concerned about any, any, anything that's associated with socialism. It's like the word, it triggers. But, but as the next generation, um, the younger Cuban Americans, they're, they're far less likely to, to be as concerned about that. They're more concerned just, you know, about, about uh, the quality of their life and their children's lives as they grow up in South Florida. And we are seeing the generational change in the Cuban American population. And one other huge Hispanic population in Florida is the Puerto Rican community, which primarily lives in central Florida. And they are more, uh, they tend to vote more democratic. But it, again, it, I agree with Loretta. It is very, um, until we start seeing the votes come in, Pete, on, on November 3rd and start getting hard numbers, you can't assume like, like even though we're seeing um, the, 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 the the advantage that the Democrats had built, at least in numbers coming in through absentee ballot and vote and, and early voting, that that just because it happens to be a Democratic ballot or just because it happens to be a Republican, that that they're going to be voting that way. You know, we will see. And I think Florida is a transitioning state, much as like Georgia is, Phil. Um, you know, we've been purple for a while, but it, which side of the purple are we going to start falling on more likely? You know, will it be We've tended to fall more on the red side. That certainly was the case in 2018 when a lot of the country went went democratic. Florida still on our state races primarily, we, we, we elect a Republican. So we'll see, it's gonna be very interesting, but I do think the changes that are occurring in Florida are, are one where we have a much more diverse population um, and some of the older um, political beliefs um, are being replaced by more democratic more democratically voting uh, population. So I, I started this uh, uh, Zoom meeting off with, uh, we get to be a fly in the wall doing a really interesting conversation, uh, which unfortunately now I have to end uh, because we've run out of time, but uh, you delivered on what I promised, a fascinating uh, back and forth. And I definitely appreciate all your time and insight. Uh, and again, your your uh, public service that has always included um, uh, working with members from the other side of the aisle, uh, respecting each other as friends and colleagues, and you're showcasing that again today. So thank you that for that. That was my husband. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I also want to thank uh, the FMC team. Uh, I don't get to moderate terribly often, so I want to take this opportunity to be on camera and let the FMC team know how uh, appreciative I am of their incredibly hard work. As I said, 150 plus virtual panels we've put together since March, uh, all of them outstanding. And it's because uh, in this weird world we're all working in, uh, the former members of Congress is just blessed with a great group of professionals. So thank you to my team. Thank you. Um, and uh, we'll see you after the election when we all are smarter. Thanks. Florida, Florida, okay. Florida. Take care, everybody. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Bye.